battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today on the show, more child labor in Alabama. Huntsville workers are fighting return to the office orders. We talked to friend of the show, Maximilian Alvarez, about his new book, The Work of Living, and more on the program today. If you want to be part of the show, we've got a phone number and the line is open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail throughout the week and we might play it on the next program. You can also text us throughout the week and we might answer your text as well. We'll have an answer to one of the messages that we got last week coming up shortly. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio or If you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online. We are anywhere you find anything online, all at The Valley Labor Report. TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you get your podcasts, YouTube, just search The Valley Labor Report and you'll be able to find us. We upload clips of the show to several of these platforms. We broadcast the full live show on Facebook and YouTube and we upload it uh, to our podcast feeds. So, uh, any way you want to consume our content, we put it out there, folks. We try to make ourselves accessible. Uh, just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding is, is seriously, it comes from our listeners. Um, we couldn't do this without them. We are on multiple commercial radio stations. Uh, basically, it's paid programming, you know, so we just, <clears throat> we don't make any money. I don't make any money for the time that I spend preparing for the show or the time that I spend hosting hosting the show, neither does Adam. Uh, All of the money that we get goes directly to making the show operate. So if you want to help us stay on the air, then uh, consider becoming a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation, or buy our new hat. Uh, It's not really new anymore, uh, but I've got it on right here. Got a nice little graph on it, and you can do all of that at our website, tvlr.fm, or you can become become a patron at patreon.com slash thevalleylaborreport. Um, and if you're a member of a union, you should uh, you should get your local to sponsor the show if you think that uh, if you think that our show is good and helpful. Um, we couldn't do it without the listeners supporting, but uh, we also couldn't do it without our local union sponsors. So uh, consider that. I want to uh, uh, before we jump into the show, I want to uh, give a special shout out to our super producer uh, Michael Bailey. 
Um, he is. We have we have now transitioned fully from uh, all of our audio post production stuff is now going to be done by Spencer, um, and it had been done for about the last year by Michael Bailey. So if you listen to us on the uh, as a podcast or on YouTube or really if you if you listen to us in any way that is not live and not our live streams. That audio for the last year, year and a half or so, has been done by Michael Bailey. He's a retired broadcast engineer, uh, worked in the radio industry, lives in Decatur, um, and uh, (laughs) he said that our audio was so bad (laughs) before he started helping us that he uh, downloaded it and cleaned it up himself like he liked the content to the show but he's kind of an audiophile and and he was like you know i really want to be able to listen to the show but it's just it's too much there there's too much variation it's it's too choppy it's too the audio is just not good the audio is not good and so he would to listen to it himself he would download it and clean up the audio, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then and then listen to it as a podcast himself that he basically created. And so he he emailed the show and he was like, "Hey, you know, I'm basically doing this work anyway. So if you want to use it, uh, then feel free." And so we did, and I think it greatly improved the quality of the show. Absolutely, um, I, I think it, it really, really. Um, I think it really helped us out a lot. I know it helped us out a lot. I think it, it greatly improved uh, the 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 audio of the show for people who don't listen to us live, and uh, and so we really appreciate his support. He is uh, he's stepping back now. He is you know he 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 was a retired broadcast engineer, and so uh, you know so he's wanting to uh, take a little less time doing kind of responsibility type stuff and wanting to spend a little bit more time uh, just having fun. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, much love from Infinite Content in the uh, in the YouTube chat. Much love to your sound man who decided to clean up your audio as a labor of love. No kidding. Much love to him. So absolutely. Yeah, we really appreciate Mike. Um, thank you so much. Uh, it, it really it really has meant a lot working uh, uh, working with you the past year and a half. Hope you're able to get some rest and hope you continue to enjoy the show as Spencer takes over for you. Um, I think he's going to do a great job as well. So. Uh, also wanted before we got kind of got into the show proper, wanted to answer a listener text message. And uh, just a reminder, you can text us anytime throughout the week at the phone number 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. And we got a text last week uh, from Infinite Content. That's his username. Uh, it says Infinite Content here. Is there a way that regular folk uh, can contribute to the UMWA Warrior Met Strike Fund, and uh, this is a question that, that that we got from him, and also a question that I got from um, from an, another friend of the show, Michael Hansen, uh, who is the executive director or something for GASP, and he you know he was basically asking how is it that how can regular people kind of support these uh, the striking miners in Brookwood. And, you know, the best way to do that is going to be donating to their strike fund, donating to their pantry, their strike pantry fund, um, and, uh, writing people like the Alabama attorney general, people like the Alabama department of labor, uh, and, you know, doing that more as an exercise, almost an exercise in futility, but just to say that you've done it. Uh, but, but more than that, you know, writing to 
the Federal Department of Labor and the White House, because these are the entities, you know, like we, we know, unfortunately, that Republicans in Alabama, they do not actually care about coal miners. They care about coal bosses. Right. And so uh, and they have proven that over the last 500 days on strike uh, that these people have been on strike. They've proven that they've proven Alabama Republicans, conservative media folks who are on the radio for three, four, five hours a day and haven't spent hardly a second talking about these rural Alabama coal miners fighting against international private equity firms, right? Um, and, and, and so the best way that the, the um, one of the best ways that you can support it is going to be like writing to the White House, writing to the Federal Department of Labor, saying that you need to be doing something, writing to OSHA, writing to the EPA, uh, because there have been safety incidents since the strike began. There have been increased pollution in a nearby river since the strike began. And all of these, uh, and the federal government could really be doing a lot more to support these folks. And that would actually really materially kind of shift the balance of power in this strike if the federal government really came down hard on Warrior Met and the federal government is not doing that and and you know biden has done things for unions the federal department uh the federal uh the executive branch department of labor they have done some things for unions but they have not done hardly anything they haven't done anything at all for these strikers uh in alabama and obviously you know republicans don't care about them uh democrats say they do so they need to prove it and uh but other than that Donating to the Strike Fund is definitely going to be a way that you can support. And you can do that uh, at paypal.me slash UMWA Strike Pantry. Paypal.me slash UMWA Strike Pantry. And that is going to, that will pay for their strike, the, the food that they put in the strike pantry. You know, you, they only get, now they get $500 a week from the union and strike benefits. Uh, and so it, you know, that that's not a whole lot of money. And so it is a lot for a strike pay. It, it is a lot for strike pay. Um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, paying for your groceries, not a whole lot of money. And, and so they have a strike pantry where you can, you know, kind of get free groceries, free school supplies, stuff like that. And their strike pantry was recently flooded in some of the, uh, in, in some of the storms recently. And so they've had to replenish a lot of stuff. They kind of, kind of ha- had to replenish it from zero almost. So they could definitely use, uh, donations to their strike pantry and again that web address is going to be paypal.me slash umwa strike pantry it's going to come up you know pay hayden hayden burleson or hayden wright or something and she is the president of the women's auxiliary so she is basically the she's the person who administers this fund right so that's going to go to the strike pantry there's also a strike um a, a strike aid fund which is just divvied out directly to the miners as a supplement to the strike, the five hundred dollars strike checks, and so um, they get something like a hundred dollars every week or two from the strike aid fund, in addition to the strike benefit checks that they get from the union. And you can donate there at umwa.org/umwa2021/strike-fund. That is umwa.org/umwa2021/strike-fund. So those are two ways that you can donate. A couple of ways that you can try to uh, try to get the federal government to do something about this, and and so th- those are those are ways that that regular working folks can support the strike. 
Let's go ahead and jump into the show proper then, and we'll do that with uh, Last Week in Southern Labor. Last Week in Southern Labor is a segment that we do uh, mostly every week where we tell you what happened in the labor movement in the South. We pull the information from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird?, uh, which compiles all this information for the entire United States with his permission. So if you want to see what's going on outside of the South, subscribe to his newsletter, whogetsthebird.substack.com. It's a very, very good resource. Um, I really enjoy reading it every week. So with that, let's jump into new organizing for the weeks of for the week of August 13th through August 20th. 70 workers for Liberty Utilities in Columbus, Georgia, are unionizing with the Utility Workers Union. 55 firefighters working for private firefighting contractor Constellus in Marietta, Georgia, are unionizing with the Transport Transport Workers Union, TWU, TWU Local 525. 42 stagehands, costumers, and others at the Robert W. Woodruff Arts Center in Atlanta, Georgia, are unionizing with IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stagehand Employees. Seven workers who make transport concrete for Irving Materials in Scottsville, Kentucky, are joining Teamsters Local 89. And Huntsville, Alabama utility workers are seeking representation with the IBEW and are showing up at city council meetings to make their case. In strikes and bargaining, not a whole lot of updates, but the Memphis 7, which is an entire organizing committee, who were flagrantly fired by Starbucks months ago. A federal judge ordered that they get reinstated. And uh, then they struck the store the next day. The Starbucks was granted a stay by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals on the NLRB's order, so they have not been actually reinstated. They're not actually back at work yet. Uh, but hopefully we see that soon because because um, that's, you know, I don't know. It's crazy. You can, uh, you can go back and watch our coverage of that. In political fights, Starbucks continues to fire organizers and is calling foul against the NLRB, pushing for a national injunction on mail-in elections. The backstory of that is they're pushing for a national injunction on mail-in elections because they allege that one staffer at one NLRB regional office communicated with the union. Doesn't even they don't don't even specify like what the communication was or like whether it was you know bad or not. It's crazy, crazy stuff. There was a big update this week in the rail labor dispute though, which is affecting 115,000 workers as the Biden-appointed Presidential Emergency Board issued their recommendations for a settlement, which triggers a final 30-day cooling off period before any potential strike or lockout. The upshot of this is they recommend a serviceable wage package, but they do little to nothing to address the overwork and lack of time off for rail workers, which is what provoked strike strike threats earlier this year. Uh, Joe Demanuel Hall interviewed rail worker Ross Gruders for Jacobin. You can check that out. And some of the unions have issued tepid statements of disappointment without any commitment to push for a strike. So we'll see what happens there. American University staff in D.C. with SEIU Local 500 will be walking off the job on Monday. They did walk off the job on Monday. 
um, and I believe that they were able to reach a tentative agreement. So uh, we'll probably have an update for you in next week's Last Week in Southern Labor. And finally, Baton Rouge, Louisiana transit workers with the Amalgamated Transit Union, ATU, Local 1546, have a new contract after years of negotiations. So congratulations to those folks. I also want to send our shout-out to the Columbus Education Association members who held a strike this week. Yes. Yeah. That's uh, very teachers cool. in Columbus, Ohio, which is uh, the largest school district in the state, uh, they went on strike Monday. And uh, last I heard, they have a tentative agreement, but I believe they are uh, awaiting a vote on that tentative agreement. Yeah. Um. We've got an unfortunate update for you in the Scottsboro Starbucks Union case, though. Uh, their election period ended the week before last. It was a mail-in ballot election, and the count took place on Tuesday. Uh, I'd first like to thank the IBEW Local 558 for allowing the Starbucks workers to use their hall to watch the live stream of the vote count, um, which took place at the NLRB Region 10 office in Birmingham, uh, so as to not have to drive all the way down to Birmingham from Scottsboro, which is uh, like over two hours. The IBEW Local 558 allowed them to use their satellite office in Huntsville to watch the, the Zoom meeting. So that uh, we really appreciate that. And I'd also like to thank um, the North Alabama Area Labor Council for paying for catering for the event. That was, yeah, absolutely. That was very cool. But the final tally ended up being eight for the union, eight against the union with four challenged ballots. Um, so because the number of challenged ballots is obviously determinative, uh, with you know the results being tied right now, the next step is for the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, to conduct an investigation to see if those challenged ballots are eligible or not. So what happens in the process is that you know uh, before they actually count the ballots, they go through everybody who submitted who who mailed in a ballot, right? And and so you know they look at this person, they you know they look at their name, and either the employer or the union has an opportunity to challenge the validity of the ballot, and they would challenge it based on grounds of okay, you know maybe this person doesn't work here anymore, maybe this person's not in the bargaining unit, stuff like that. So um, they set the challenged ballots to the side, they count the unchallenged ballots, and if the challenged ballots are determinative, meaning that the challenged ballots could potentially determine the outcome of the election, then they will investigate, the NLRB will investigate each of the challenged ballots to see if those voters were eligible. Um, and so that's what's going to be happening now. The next step is for the NLRB to conduct an investigation to see if the, uh, the people who sent in those challenge ballots are eligible to vote or not. If they are, they will be opened and counted. If they are not, then they won't be counted, and the final tally will stand, which would mean no union, because you have to get 50% plus one to win a union election. Another possibility is also that the NLRB orders an election rerun because of illegal anti-union activity by the company. We saw that in Bessemer. Um, but what this shows is that even in rural Ruby Red, Alabama, in Scottsboro, Alabama, Starbucks cannot defeat a union election without breaking the law. They illegally fired partners a while back, you'll remember. They illegally threatened that the store would close. They illegally withheld benefits from the workers for 
being in a being in the middle of a union election, all this stuff. And so we can say, I think, with a very, very high level of confidence, we can say with a high level of confidence that the Scottsboro Starbucks would be unionized today, but for illegal anti-union activity by the company. I think that that is that, you know, it was tied even with all this stuff. Right. 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 But whatever happens, you know, these folks, they put up a hell of a fight. And uh, our understanding is that they do intend to keep fighting for their union. And um, they're going to, you know, continue through the investigation. And uh, uh, and, and I think that they're going to try for a rerun if if, uh, uh, if the NLRB will grant it if they end up losing the election. So we'll see what happens. Uh, and we're going to be continuing to stand with them. Uh, Absolutely. Still, I mean, incredibly proud of these very young folks who are willing to take on such a behemoth corporation. Absolutely. uh, In spite of their flagrant labor law violations. So sending them love and solidarity and support, uh, wishing for a good outcome uh, with this uh, investigation of the challenge ballots. I got to say it was pretty fishy. Yeah. I'm just one person. What do I know? Looked pretty fishy to me, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The de- it it is definitely really cool seeing folks so young, um, being involved in it, uh, being involved in a union campaign in the way that they were. Right. I, I said something about you know buying them, buying them drinks or something, and none of them are twenty one. <laughs> it's like one of the people there that's twenty one. Everybody else is underage. So, um, uh, and shout out to Garrett's mom for the uh, wonderful cupcakes. Yeah, that I that was some have. real southern hospitality. That we show I up to the ballot have. count party, and we've got some homemade cupcakes. Yeah, so that gotta I love can't it. have. That right. I can't well, have. she made peanut butter cupcakes. I had an extra one for you though. I'm sure they were good though. I'm sure they, they were delicious. Were <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, have we got Mustafa on the line, Adam? Uh, I do believe we do. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, so let's move into an even more local story then. Uh, for folks who did not know, workers at the AT&T Call Center on Clinton Avenue, they're union. They're unionized. They're organized with the Communication Workers of America Local 3905. Uh, just a fun fact for you, their strike in 2019 against AT&T involving 20,000 Southern workers, uh, that was the first picket line that I was ever on. So I like to tell that story when I can. Uh, but right now, the local management at AT&T is trying unnecessarily to bring these folks back into the office. And uh, we've got on the line now president of the local union, Mustafa Hassan, to talk to us about this. Uh, Mustafa, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, first, let's set, uh, set the stage for understanding the gratuity of this uh, return to work order. We we talked a couple of weeks ago or a week ago about this. And my understanding is that this is not an order that's coming from the top of the company. This is something that regional management is doing superfluous. Like, they don't have to do this, right? Well, yes and no. Um, actually, it is coming from the top of the company. Um, what has happened is we were in an agreement with the company to work from home. Um, just to kind of give you some history on that. Um, initially, before the COVID outbreak started, uh, CWA approached AT&T, even before there was a positive test in the mainland United States and said, hey, you know, there's a potential problem here. Let's get out in front of this and let's look into working from home. 
you know, for the safety of our members. Um, AT&T finally did agree to that. And we set up a, a, a MOA, MOA, where the company and CWA both agreed, hey, we're going to set it up so they can work from home um, and still do their, their job effectively. Now, that was an agreement with National CWA as well as AT&T. What has happened is the, the agreement has been extended a few times throughout the COVID pandemic. We've come to a time now where that the most recent agreement comes to an end September 30th. Management has started to call people back into the call centers. Um, this does affect all the AT&T call centers nationwide. Um, however, CWA and AT&T did agree to another extension where it is left up to the different department heads. The department heads that represent our call center in Huntsville, as well as our Decatur call center, has decided to recall the workers back into the office. I see. And what is the date that they're wanting workers to be back in the office? They want them back in the office by September 30th of this year. Mm. And so what is what's the reasoning that they're giving for this? So pretty much the reasoning, uh, Jacob, they're saying that they feel that it is safe to go back into the office. Initially, they were saying, well, the agreement has come to an end. We never intended on extending this agreement. But obviously, due to circumstances with the COVID outbreak still, you know, expanding and, you know, you have monkeypox and then there's other dangers that our membership as well as local management faces by going into that building, we expected them to go ahead and honor the extension that we had on the table. Mm -hmm. And has have. Uh... And, and so that's basically it. They're, they're just, you know, they're, there's not any other reason. They're, they're not saying, you know, like, oh, y'all would be more productive in the office. It's just like, I just don't want to. Not directly. Um, most of them are just, they're just kind of, it's almost robotic. You're hearing, hey, mm. we're, we're within the CDC guidelines. It is safe to return to work. This was never going to be permanent, which we understood that, right? When this mm -hmm. first broke out, we said, this is an agreement. It's a temporary agreement. It's not actually a contract. It's an MOA, which is mm -hmm. a difference, which is a, an agreement. We both say, okay, for the safety of the members, as well as management, we'll allow you to work at home. So now, um, throughout the process, because we've gotten extensions, we expected the company to do the right thing and give us another extension. Um, throughout this, um, we've lost members to COVID. Um, that worked in that Clinton office, as well as throughout the country. I know in the Minnesota office, they lost a couple people to COVID as well. Um, so this is not just a local issue. This is a national issue that they're really not giving us a direct answer of why, why right now is the time to bring everybody back. Or, I mean, why even at all? I, you know, I mean, so many uh, companies across the country and, and right here in Huntsville are allowing their workforce to at least most of the time work from home because they have seen that they, they've seen that it's not hurt productivity for workers to be at home. Uh, they've seen that, you know, it, it's just 
if and if workers want to stay at home, why not allow them? Uh, you know, and and especially as people are you know trying to attract different work, uh, trying to attract workers, as you know, we have a quote unquote labor shortage, right? They want uh, they want to say, and so just as a quality of life type thing. They're allowing workers to stay at home. And has there been any indication that that uh, productivity has been harmed at these call centers by working from home? Good question. Um, not at all. We have regular meetings with upper management. And the purpose of those meetings is to show productivity, how the workers have been uh, performing while at home, attendance, different trends. Uh, even here in Huntsville, in our local office on Clinton, we recently hired 15 new agents. They they were going to be in a training for several weeks in the building, which they did start off that way. And after a couple of days, the company sent them home. They didn't even feel safe in that building. The company, mm -hmm. the, the local management, as well as the members were sent home. So, no, um, like you said, just to kind of touch on what you said, Jacob, too. The trend around the country, even here in Huntsville, is work from home. You see several companies doing that. I actually am a direct TV call center employee. We have permanent work from home. Mm. Prior to the pandemic, that would have never happened. Right. What happened in our situation is we were under the same MOA agreement because at the time we were still with AT&T. AT&T then sold off direct TV. The management company that's over DirecTV now has agreed to do permanent work from home. The call center is still open for agents who are who decided they want to come into the center. They may not have Internet. They, they need other options. So the call center is open and available for them. But for us, if we choose to work from home, which the overwhelming majority, I would say over 90 percent of that people in that center are working from home. So that also shows that it can actually work. Productivity right. has not dropped off. Um, attendance is about the same to where it was prior to the pandemic. So, and AT&T is well aware of that. So this is not a situation where they don't know. They work closely with DirecTV and they still own 70% of the company. Right. And you know, and they've got so many ways. I was talking, I, I went to y'all's local meeting the other day, and I, I was talking to some of the folks there about the surveillance that they've got on you, you know, and so there's no reason that if there are productivity issues or if there is an issue with a particular employee, that they're going to know that whether they're in the office or not. Talk to us about the surveillance that they've got on y'all's computers. That's that's so true. Um, I, I can even speak to our situation. They can see every keystroke you make. They can um, they can see what systems you're in. So just from a standpoint of making sure that the employees are doing what they're supposed to, I, you can make an argument that is probably more closely monitored at home versus in a center where somebody may not be really just sitting down and maybe walking around observing people, but mm. you can make that argument. So it's not a situation where they cannot monitor or even coach an employee um, the same way, if not better, than they can do in the center. Because you can use Microsoft Teams and you can get your group together. Everybody can speak together as opposed to kind of pulling up a chair in the center and, you know, having everybody on top of each other and, you know, susceptible to getting sick and disease, things like that. So that is not a, a valid reason to say, hey, 
um, we need you back in the center because the capabilities that they have, keep in mind, AT&T is a major telecom giant in this country. They have all sorts of capabilities and the money to make it work. Exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, they were telling me, I, I, if I remember correctly, that every day their manager gets a report on their 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 work performance or and like what happened over the you know the keystrokes and the and the how long you were active and and how long you took breaks it's just it's crazy everything. crazy stuff everything everything is monitored to the t to the t whether you're at home whether you're in the building they can still monitor you every everything mm -hmm. that you do so like you said there's a right. report for everything in at&t your adherence yeah. your availability um, your productivity, different mm -hmm. things. And there's different goals that the agents have to meet um, while working. Of course, like I said, they have that same capability at home. Right, right. And, and you know, so obviously, you know, since, since you're here and you're, you know, the union is fighting this, the members are not, the members would prefer working from home, right? They would prefer a, at least having that option like they do at DirecTV. Absolutely. Overwhelmingly. Um I've talked to several members throughout the country. This is, again, I just kind of want to emphasize, this is overwhelmingly. Um, and, and I'll be honest, I was kind of skeptical about how work from home would work when I started working from home. Then when I kind of see how, how it actually worked, I said, hey, this is something that can work long-term. Hmm. So now we're hearing throughout the country. I mean, Minnesota, they're very active up there. Um, Ohio, Alabama, Tennessee, uh, Florida, uh, Georgia, all the workers that are working from, I have not heard one person say they want to return back to the office. So, right. and management is aware of that. So we didn't just start saying this when we found out, hey, we have to return to the office. We have been saying this for months on and months on, hey, Let's make this permanent. So mm -hmm. we we went to the company and said, hey, this can work. This right. can save you money. You still can monitor everybody the same way you need to monitor them. And the work-life balance would work a lot better for you. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind too, Jacob, um, this is a lo local management is on board with this. So the, the managers in these buildings and these call centers they do not want to return to work either. Wow. This is an upper management decision. And they've said, hey, you guys have to go back into the center. You know, that's it. We've decided. So everyone now, I mean, I know they can't speak on it and I can mm -hmm. be their advocate. But I'm telling you, I know for a fact, not only do the members, you know, the workers, the local management does not want to return to work either. That's amazing the that the people furthest away from the work being performed are the ones that are trying <laughs> trying to right. trying to make y'all do this. That's just wild. Um, you know, you you mentioned. Do I recall correctly that there were safety issues with the building itself besides COVID? Yes, um, the buildings are very old. the The building in Decatur, as well as at the Clinton location in Huntsville, specifically. Um, there's a lot of issues in that building. Um, over the years, there's been issues with ventilation, uh, the AC and the heating, uh, rodents in the building, 
uh, mold stains on the tiles, uh, mm -hmm. the elevator. There was issues with the elevator where people were stuck in the elevator for up to a half hour. Um, and this was consistent over the years. Now they've kind of patched up some things here and there, but those are major concerns. Management, upper management is also well aware of that. I've expressed that to them several times. The members have expressed that to them over the years. Um, so now we're to a point where, hey, you're calling these people back. We want, not only are we worried about this COVID and what's going on there, and then, you know, the safety of our members, we're also worried about the safety within the building. And that is something, again, that also uh, affects local management as well as the membership. So what we've done there, kind of to let you know what's going on, um, we've, through several avenues, we've, uh, we've went, I've went into the building last week and kind of looked around, asked questions to the building manager to see when these things are gonna be corrected. We've reached out to upper management. Upper management has told me they're working on some things. Everything is not where it needs to be right now. Um, so we've set up a tour of the building with our safety committee from CWA. Um, so we're gonna do a tour of the building with management and uh, the building director. I wanna make this point as well, uh, during one of our meetings, I invited upper management, because this is supposed to be a partnership, to tour the building with us. I've asked them several times, hey, come to Huntsville and tour the building. I've not gotten a straight answer. Um, they act like they're not interested in coming. I was told, hey, we've been to the building in the past. We know how it looks, and pretty much that's it. Even as recent as this week, I spoke to local management, I'm sorry, upper management, and I asked one of the upper managers, hey, come on to Huntsville. He would not commit to coming. He said he would follow up and get back to me by Friday. Here it is Saturday morning. I haven't heard it. Mm. Well, that might be too much. That might be uh, too close to work for upper management. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and, and so the, the union is obviously proposing instead, instead of doing this, instead of doing this, you know, uh, totally unnecessary thing, uh, allowing workers to to continue working from home and, and and, you know, allow them to come into the office if they want. But but to continue working from home. Right. That's correct. So what we've proposed, um, I mean, even in this recent meeting, I said, hey, why not? go it because this current uh, moa that we have hmm. um just to let you know a little bit more about that is through the march 31st of 2023 so this is an agreement with cwa and the company that the department heads can either honor or not as far as i know i do not know any department head in at&t that has honored that agreement to extend the work from home obviously it was serious enough for the company to agree to it. It kind of contradicts them because on one hand, they're saying, hey, it's safe to return in the building. But then you have this agreement in place with CWA where you're saying, okay, we're going to leave it up to department heads to decide whether the workers come back or not. So if, if they're going to leave it up to them, why have the agreement? Obviously, there's something there where the, even the company felt that it's serious enough to go ahead and make this agreement now in that meeting i brought that point up as well i was told well that was set up just in case of an emergency mm. my argument to that is 
it doesn't take long to set up this agreement. The framework for it is already in place. Let's say if an emergency arises, we can just instantly set it up in a day. So that really doesn't hold any weight to me. I felt like that was an excuse and a cop out and nobody wants to really address the real problem. So uh, is there anything that folks outside of the local can do to help? Yes, the, uh, our labor community, you know, you can join us in this fight. Uh, we have a petition that was started by our Minnesota local, which last I checked had over 7,500 uh, signatures to make work from home permanent, at least consider making it a permanent option. Um, Jacob, I can send you the link to that. And if you can spread that out, that'll be great. Also, um, if anyone wants to help out in any um, any activities that we have set up, we have diff- we have uh, regular Zoom calls with our membership as well with a membership that we have up in Minnesota. I keep mentioning Minnesota. Let me let me um, mention them a little bit more. They have a Zoom call every Thursday that, you know, people can join. And we just kind of put our heads together and come up with different ideas. Um, I feel like we can get this out in the media. Uh, Jacob, you kind of helped me with that as well. I appreciate that. Um, also, if anyone wants to contact me directly, uh, Jacob, you have my email. You can share it. It's president at CWA 3905.org. Mustafa, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for uh, talking to us. Again, thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right, folks, we're going to move into a break. Uh, don't go anywhere. Uh, we're going to be right back. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR if you want to call in. See you on the other side. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. 
The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAC. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, Send us a text message. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also contribute to the conversation on our YouTube and Facebook chat. In the YouTube chat, we've got uh, Jared, local uh, uh, local listener with IFPTE. He said, I just placed my registration for the Troublemakers Conference in October. And you should too, folks. Go to labornotes.org and sign up for the Alabama Troublemakers School. You can go to uh, labornotes.org, go to events, sign up for the Troublemakers School. I'm going to be there. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, folks, if you are not signed up. If you're local and you are not going to the Alabama Troublemaker School and you don't have a good excuse, shame on you. Shame on you. 
you should go. It's going to be a lot of fun. Jared also says in the chat, there are a lot of IFPTE machinists and AFG work that has gone into the SLS, which is scheduled for launch on Monday. The launch window starts at 6.30 U.S. Central, uh, which is very cool. Very, very cool. Um, so here's a fun fact before we go into our next topic. Uh, all y'all, especially folks who listen to us on WVNN in Huntsville, uh, here's a fun fact before we go into our next topic. Um, uh, you know, all y'all have heard the weekday hosts wailing, just absolutely apoplectic, that some working folks are going to get their loans forgiven. Um, and so here's a question. Have you ever thought to look and see if Cumulus, which is the company that owns this station and five others in Huntsville alone, have you ever thought to see if Cumulus got any PPP loans forgiven? Well, they did to the tune of $20 million. $20 million. And, you know, I mean, look, what, look, okay, you got a restaurant, got to close down. You are, like, physically not able to operate. Taking a PPP loan is 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 one thing, and it's, and it's good, and you should take it. Uh, it you know, it's also – it's worth noting – you know, the people that even if they own restaurants, people that take PPP loans and they don't think that people who, uh, you know, working folks who went to college uh, should get some of their student debt forgiven. You know, they think that they, they should be, uh, you know, just sacked with this debt for the rest of their lives. That's it's worth noting. Sure. But it is a little bit different. But uh, radio can be done from home and it was done from home and it did not hamper the operations of radio you were i don't remember ever actually the radio going off the air during the lockdowns for instance radio was still playing never went off the air but a full 20 million dollars 20 million taxpayer dollars went to funding literal right-wing propaganda which is, you know, I mean, look, you like the message or you don't. That's not, you know, that's not really material. That's just a description of what is happening on news talk stations owned by Cumulus. It's right-wing propaganda, right? And uh, 20 million of your dollars went to funding that. Just thought I'd share, since that's not something that you're going to hear during the rest of the week. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah, it sounds like maybe welfare yeah. welfare for talk radio talk radio welfare. i'm starting to think we should have uh submitted some ppp Jeez, loans like no apparently kidding. we're the only idiots who didn't get in on this grift no kidding Jeez, man look at us trying to be decent and honorable we could have had like we could have gotten an employee with these ppp loans and we could have we could have really ramped up the business yeah take over youtube with that ppp loan Thanks for sharing that, though. I think that's uh, quite revealing. Twenty million dollars of your money went to going, uh, went to directly to funding right wing propaganda over the pandemic. So that's great. Love that for us. 
Um, in, in better news, though, in better news, yes. nearly 200 GE workers in Auburn, Alabama, announced their union drive with the Industrial Division of the Communication Workers of America. Just got off the line with Mustafa Hassan, Communication Workers of America, local 3905 president up here in Huntsville. Uh, 200 GE workers in Auburn, Alabama, announced their union drive with the Industrial Division of the Communication Workers of America, CWA, also known as the International Union of Electronics electrical, salaried, machine, and furniture work, furniture workers, I-U-E-C-W-A. Uh, very exciting. Those workers produce additive components for the jet propulsion industry. In their press release, the workers say uh, they have strong majority support, well, well over majority support, and that workers at other GE plants across the country are organizing as well. If they win, it'll be the first new GE union in nearly a decade, which is very exciting. I talked to Auburn GE worker Marcus Durrell yesterday about the campaign. He told me that they actually had a campaign back in 2017, and they were not successful, partially because the company began to address some of the issues that ignited the campaign they began treating the workers with more respect they began you know listening to them more stuff like that uh but like any bad boss turned good boss story if you don't get it in a contract if you don't get it in writing then those gains are going to start to wither away and that's exactly what happened down there he said marcus said that it got particularly bad at the beginning of this year and so him and some other workers at the ge auburn plant went to the IUE CWA to talk about forming a union and the campaign took off from there. And you know, I think I think it's it's interesting and it's worth noting how much talking to Durrell and and even across a, a, all of these campaigns that are going on respect and just being treated like a human is at least as front and center as you know bread and butter wage and benefits issues right like if yeah. you're you know just a cheat code you know for for managing like if you just treat your workers well you can you know you can avoid a lot of the a lot of the union stuff if you treat your workers well like not even not even the wage and benefits stuff just treating them like a human speaking to them what respecting them listening to them right and um it, so, and that's that's definitely been my experience as well. Uh, yeah. Even in in the education sector, it's it's about just being treated with respect and dignity, and that's mm -hmm. not a lot to ask. No, it's not a lot to ask at all. It's the bare minimum, in fact. And you know that that's it's definitely an interesting thing seeing that. But um, and so that can be, you know, and and so these concerns about wages and benefits can really be brought to the fore can be metastasized by management just being disrespectful and that's what happened here and there are definitely issues in that area in the plant as well the wages and benefits area he said that this is one he said that this is a 90 percent 90 plus percent black workforce and they weren't given juneteenth despite asking for it after wow. that was made a federal holiday which is like that's one day and you've got a 90 percent black workforce why would you why would you not do that? That's bonkers. They work with they also work with material containing carcinogens that can cause cancer and they're not really compensated for that additional risk they're taking on for the company. They make as much as 10 to 12 hours less, he said, 
than workers doing similar things at other GE plants. 10 to $12 an hour is a lot of money. Uh, he said that many other, uh, many other GE plants are union, but that there is a non-union plant in the Carolinas that Marcus said makes more money than they do. Wow. So, yeah. So, you know, really kind of unique things that they're facing at this Auburn plant. And he said that since they announced the campaign, management has really, really gone heavy on the anti-union campaign, um, pushing a lot of fear about closures and stuff. But uh, the way that he tells it, they have gotten themselves really educated and been able to inoculate themselves against the, this sort of fear campaign by management um, and, you know, really understanding their worth to the company. They produce a lot of material down at that Auburn plant, and they produce it a, a pretty unique product as well as the quantity. So you've got the quality and the quantity there, and it would be really difficult for GE to actually close that plant. So, um, really exciting news there. Really exciting news. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing more from them, for sure. Um, and I asked Marcus if there was anything that he'd like to make sure folks understood about the campaign, and he said, you know, he just wants folks to understand that they are really asking for just parity with some of the union plants, right? Nothing crazy, nothing that GE isn't already doing, and uh, so really, really um, reasonable asks. Uh, he also said, go Skyhawks. His kid goes to school there at West Point. So go Skyhawks. <laughs> That's exciting news to see that happening in Auburn. And mm -hmm. I'm really wishing best of luck to this campaign. And it sounds like they have a lot of issues to organize around. And, and I'm, yeah, uh, it also sounds like uh, they're pretty confident in their support. Yep. Yep. Uh, we've been tracking the story about child labor in the state of Alabama for the last month or so. And just to review really quickly before we get to the update, because, you know, if you're not a regular listener to the program, if you listen to maybe like conservative radio stations or something, you would be forgiven for not knowing about this because they're not talking about it. Um, but back in July, Reuters came out with a big report showing that for sure several children, including 12-year-old girls, were working at a Hyundai supplier manufacturing plant outside of Montgomery in Laverne, Alabama. And potentially dozens of children worked there from testimony from the workers. Dozens of children. That is, I mean, really, really beyond the pale. The report also revealed that this plant is an unsafe working environment, even more so than a normal manufacturing plant. You know, you've, you're going to have a lot of risks in just a, in a safe manufacturing plant. But this plant has received several fines from OSHA. OSHA almost never fines anybody, totaling nearly $50,000 in the last 10 years, including violations within the last year and including violations for crush and amputation hazards. Really, really an unsafe working environment for anybody, much less 12-year-old girls. Also in the report are testimonies from local cops saying that they relayed all of this to the Alabama Attorney General back in February. And there has been no action from the Alabama Attorney General's office since February. And a full month after the story broke, we're a full month after the story broke, the Alabama Attorney General has not commented publicly at all and right-wing freaks across the state have not been lobbying for him to come down on bosses for employing little girls 
in manufacturing plants. Well, another, another Alabama Hyundai supplier has been found to have been utilizing child labor. Court filings made public last week showed that the U.S. Department of Labor said in a complaint that SL Alabama, which is a Hyundai-owned subsidiary, repeatedly violated labor regulations by, quote, employing oppressive child labor and, quote, minors under the age of 16. Mm. SL Alabama admitted to Reuters that children did work there, but you see it's not their fault because the children were hired by an outside firm. And I'm sure nobody nobody, nobody realized uh, there were children walking around. I mean, you know, look, a 12-year-old girl, 30-year-old woman. I mean, you know, you could be forgiven for not knowing the difference. Hyundai again told Reuters that it does not tolerate illegal hiring practices and that they, quote, have policies and procedures in place that require compliance with all local, state, and federal laws. This statement, in contrast to... Everything that we have about their employment Right, practices. yeah, how's that going? How's, how's, how are the policies and procedures right. going right now? Every time you get hit with an OSHA fine and uh, you're caught employing children. From the Reuters article, quote, a proposed settlement agreement w- between the government and the parts manufacturer was filed with the court. Under the terms of that agreement, SL Alabama agreed to stop hiring minors. <laughs> wow. <laughs> God, what an ask. <laughs> they agreed to punish any managers aware of the use of underage employees and suspend any relationship with any recruiters who, sub- chi- who supply child workers. The proposed agreement was signed August 18th by an SL Alabama attorney and a Department of Labor attorney. It has not yet been signed by a judge, though. The filings did not detail how many minors worked at SL Alabama or what type of jobs they performed, and it is not clear whether the company or the labor contractors it works with will face any fines or any other penalties. The Alabama attorney general has not commented on this revelation either. Maybe he's really busy. He could be really busy. You think he's really busy? What's he been doing? It's possible um, because it takes a lot of time to write tweets, Adam. You know, I don't know. Oh, that's that's right. Yeah. Adam, folks who don't know, Adam is not on Twitter. He does not have a Twitter account. And so he would be forgiven for not understanding that it takes a really long time to, you know, to tweet and to compile and to, to craft the tweets, which is uh, which is what the Alabama Attorney General has been doing since these revelations have been made public and since he's known about it. Remember, folks, we have only known the plebs, the peasants, you know, the normal people. We've only known about this for a month, right? We've only known about this for a month. The Alabama Attorney General has known about this since February for half a year, for the better part of a year. For the better part of a year, the Alabama Attorney General has known about this. Since then, he has had time, though, to tweet out a form that you can fill out if Twitter hurts your feelings. He's also moved as fast as humanly possible after Roe was overturned to ensure that little girls in Alabama have to carry their uncle's rape baby. And he has threatened to sue Google, and he has made multiple interview appearances on Fox News. 
So, you know, I mean, look, you, you can't say that his priorities are not in order. He's really there's these are important things for uh, for working people in the state of Alabama. He is an absolute joke. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's really, really, really disgusting. Um, so uh, we had we had local elections last week and, you know, uh, Adam, if you could give us just a, a, a really quick kind of rundown on that, and then we'll go to a break and we'll bring Max back on. Sure. Or, and we'll bring Max on after the break. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, August 23rd were, were the municipal elections across the Tennessee Valley and the rest of Alabama. And before diving into Huntsville's results, I did want to start by mentioning the wealthy enclave of Mountain Brook. School board races there, like so many other places, were revolving largely around right-wing manufactured outrage over diversity and what they call CRT. The promising news is that the far-right wackos were defeated by the incumbents and more moderate candidates. And we saw some similar results here in Huntsville. Tennessee Valley Progressive Alliance, Persistence Pack, and other progressive-leaning groups in Huntsville made five endorsements. In District 4, Ryan Renaud was endorsed for school board and Bill Kling for city council. And both of them won pretty convincingly. In District 2, Holly McCarty was endorsed for school board and she won overwhelmingly. Unfortunately for progressives, Danny Peters for District 2 city council came in third place. He was about 170 votes shy of making the runoff, uh, which will now be between David Little and Bill Yell. And in District 3 school board... Andrea Alvarez was endorsed by uh, many organizations, and she received far and away the most votes. But unfortunately, she was 67 votes shy of winning outright. So now she faces a runoff election on Tuesday, September 20th, against the far-right nutjob Angela McClure. The longtime incumbent Elisa Farrell came in last place. And frankly, I find that both hilarious and well-deserved. So progressive groups won three out of five races outright. They lost one outright and forced one into a runoff from a very good position with Alvarez winning nearly twice as many votes as the runner-up McClure. Now turnout in these local elections is always very low. I believe it was 12% this round, which is actually higher than normal. And it's really possible for organized people to beat out organized money at this local level. Now, I'm not sure I would consider these candidates themselves progressive, and arguably the most progressive candidate was Peters, who was unsuccessful. But there was certainly some success in electing the least regressive candidates. Uh, and let's face it, folks, sometimes that's the name of the game when it comes to elections. Uh, the slate of far-right candidates for school board, associated with folks like Mo Brooks and Casey Wardinsky, they ran nasty campaigns proclaiming that Huntsville City Schools is conducting radical left-wing indoctrination with CRT and even SEL, which stands for Social Emotional Learning, Masking, diversity initiatives, and the federal desegregation order were also frequent targets. The voters of Huntsville resoundingly rejected these reactionary candidates. So we'll see how the runoff goes on September 20th. As we get closer to the election, we're going to dive deeper into the wacky reactionary candidate for District 3 School Board. I do want to remind folks that I interviewed Andrea Alvarez, the normal person running in that district, 
I interviewed her for the Valley Labor Report, and that full conversation is available online, both on YouTube and podcasting apps. We discussed her background and platform, public input and transparency into the school system, communication, and some labor relations issues like teacher turnover rate and the privatization of support staff. Uh, we talked for over half an hour. It was a great conversation. If you are still on the fence or you're still trying to f figure out who this candidate is, really highly recommend you check it out. If you live in Southeast Huntsville or you have friends who do, please remind them of the runoff election September 20th. All right, folks, we're going to take a break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. And on the other side, we'll be talking to Maximilian Alvarez about his book, The Work of Living. Oh, yeah. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. 
Craft. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256 383 3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, you can shoot us a text message. The phone number is 844-899-8857. We got a text over the break asking if we've gotten any update from Eddie Burkhalter concerning Alabama prison conditions and the number of deaths. Um, he is constantly updating us on the situation on Twitter. You should follow him at Burkhalter Eddie on Twitter. Uh, for his work, but uh, nothing, no big updates or anything like that um, as far as that's concerned. Uh, also, appreciate Martha and Mel and Joe in the Facebook chat. Thank you for watching and chatting with us. Uh, and folks in the YouTube chat, if you have not liked and subscribed, you should do that. You should do that, folks. Um, so we've got on friend of the show, Maximilian Alvarez, right, Adam? We sure do. Max, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the Valley Labor Report. I appreciate it. Oh, man, it is always an honor to be on Alabama's only weekly labor union show. Um, and love seeing you guys. Love the work that you do. Everyone listening, please support this show. We need it now more than ever. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Listeners uh, will recognize his voice from our intro. Uh, that was really cool to have him do that. I was really happy about that. Um, so, you know, Max, we'll just go ahead and jump into it. Your book is a really, really similar concept to your podcast, your podcast, Working People. Um, and, and so, you know, let's talk about that first. What inspired you to do your podcast? Yeah, well, thank you for uh, having me on to talk about the book. I'm still kind of blown away that it's out in the world. Um, it felt like it would never uh, happen. But then again, uh, COVID kind of turned time into a flat circle. So maybe it wasn't actually that long of a wait. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the the Sparknotes version, which I've, I've told on my show Working People before, you know, is you can see it just by looking at the catalog, right? The first interview I ever did um, for the show, which I've now interviewed close to 300 workers, um, you know, over the years, not counting all the bonus episodes and all that stuff. But the first episode was with my dad, Jesus Alvarez. Um, 
because we, our family, had lost everything in the Great Recession, including eventually the house that I grew up in. Um, and like so many millions of others, you know, we were just sort of left uh, to flounder while the government uh, threw, you know, all of its weight behind the banks and corporations, um, leaving working people to fall into the abyss. And so um, it was a it was many years after the initial crash in 2008 that we lost the house um, in 2012, so 10 years ago. And my folks weren't talking about it. I wasn't really talking about it. Like we were just sort of sitting there boiling in our own sense of failure um, and, you know, not reaching out for help, not processing the trauma that we had um, been through. And it was um, it was really hurting our family. And I noticed something um, because at this time I was working as a warehouse temp in Southern California and my dad was driving for Uber and Lyft. All of this was going towards trying to keep the house that, again, we eventually did lose. Um, and my, I noticed that my dad, who is not usually a very, you know, talkative person, um, he started kind of opening up more to the folks that he was driving in Uber and Lyft because he was trying to keep his ratings up, right? He can be very good and affable in those sorts of situations, but it was in that situation that he started to realize as he was talking to folks that he was driving people who were his age, who were working two or three jobs, who were also immigrants, who had also lost their house. You know, my dad worked in real estate before that, so he it was more of a of a individual type of work. There was no real collective sense of worker solidarity. There wasn't a lot of chat, you know, around the water coolers, all that right. kind of stuff. So this was one of the first times that my dad began to talk to other workers outside of his own industry and began to realize how widespread the problem was and how he shouldn't be ashamed right of of being a a casualty of a worldwide recession and that really clued me into just how much stuff there is sitting inside um you know the brains and hearts of working people that never gets a chance to come out that we never share because we're rarely ever given the opportunity to talk in depth about our lives jobs dreams and struggles but if we do if we do open up to one another if we do show our scars and share our stories you really can build incredible solidarity, these bonds of love and trust and support um, that, you know, I wanted to make space for. And so that's why the first episode I ever did was with my dad to try to get him to talk about this stuff. And he opened up more than he ever had. And so then I, I knew there was something there. And so I kept talking to different types of workers and I kept being blown away by how much they would open up, how much they wanted to share if they would only be given the chance to and how much people responded to that. And so that's where the podcast started um, five seasons ago. And that, you know, the that's kind of how you open the show, o open every episode, you know, it, 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 working people as a podcast about uh, the lives uh, struggles, dreams, and aspirations of the working class, and that's really, I it really, really runs the gamut. You just sit down and you have a conversation with people about everything. How did you grow up? Tell me about your parents. Tell me about your friends. Your uh, going to school, your first job. Uh, your, you know, there, there's, there are some episodes that you do that have like a like a, a, a point beyond just sharing stories, you know, you'll, you'll elevate people's, um, 
you'll elevate the struggles that they're having at work, campaigns to make their working conditions better and stuff like that. But there are there are several episodes, most of them are just learning about this person's life. And there's nothing beyond that other than, you know, as a, as a political statement, it's good to learn about other normal working people. And that's something that we never... We just, we just, we just don't see that kind of stuff. We see these profiles about, you know, oh, how did this, the CEO of this Fortune 500 company, how did they make their millions? And, and you know, we learn all about, you know, the the relationship problems that Elvis Presley had, and, and you know, there are movies that are made about it, blockbuster movies, but just a, a regular people never get that kind of treatment, and and I think that's that's what your book and and your podcast does every week is it gives them you know the you're not able to give them like a uh 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 you know feature film but you are able to give them a platform and 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 to just allow them to talk about their life and contextualize it in, in the way that they want and i think that's like i don't know that's a really really cool thing that that very few people are doing and and have ever done well, thank you, brother. I really uh, appreciate that. Um, you know, and and yeah, this is this is like what, as you said, I tried to carry over into the book, right? Because even when uh, in um, twenty twenty, around the late spring, early summer, when we were all terrified, when no one knew what was going on, people were dying in mass. Uh, it was a very very scary time. And um, after decades of hollowing out basically every social safety net of entrusting the market to solve all of our problems, we uh, here in the U.S. and, and folks around the world um, were really caught uh, in a terrible position because the supports that we needed to respond to something like COVID-19, which experts had been saying was going to be coming at some point or another, um, we didn't listen to that. And so, you know, working people were really, uh, you know, screwed in that moment. Um, but it was also working people who banded together, who took care of each other, who sacrificed immeasurably to keep the world from falling apart. And that's what I wanted to honor in this book. But to your point, Jacob, like this um, has been uh part of what I want to do from the very beginning. I recorded that first episode with my dad to, you know, every interview that I record for the podcast, um, the interviews that I do at the Real News Network. When I talk to workers, I try to incorporate this as well. And especially in this book that just came out, The Work of Living. I don't, you know, as, as I told our, our brother and comrade in arms up in Canada, um, Lucas Costello, I once told him on his show, you know, we're more than just name tags, right? There is a heart mm. and human being um, behind every name tag, behind every job title. All the all the services that we depend on are made possible by flesh and blood human beings with lives and backstories and wants and desires and dreams and pain and heartbreak. There's just so much to us. And this capitalist system trains us from birth to 
not see that right or to not consider it valuable to consider it somehow you know ex uh, extraneous to everything else and i think that you see on a societal level how much inhumanity we can come to accept when we train ourselves to not recognize or value the humanity of our fellow workers and if we only see them as kind of human-shaped cardboard cutouts performing um, services or providing goods for us as consumers you know if we start to buy into that fiction if our vision starts to you know become what the system wants it to be um, you know we we will miss and and uh, accept all of the injustices that working people endure every single day and I saw that in the late spring and early summer of 2020 where people were talking about, you know, the heroism of frontline workers and the the quote unquote essential nature of uh, their work, while people were dying in mass, and um, there was something of a of a discord for me because it felt like we were honoring workers in general while simultaneously um, not caring about the lives of the actual working people who were dying from all right. of this. And I wanted to correct that. I wanted to give the working people who were living through this, working through this, fighting through this, a chance to share their stories and for people to read it and not just you know see a bartender or a gig worker but to see a whole human being with a deep backstory you're never going to be able to, to to get the whole complexity of every person's life in a single interview but i hope that i've at least given people a sense of how much depth there is to all of us and how important and valuable and sacred that is right it, what what made you feel like this project uh uh there needed to be a book in it you know i mean you do you do the podcast every week and and so what what was it about um about the pandemic that that you felt like you know this this needs a book like not just a podcast episode or a series of episodes uh there needs to be a book about this it's a great question and i know we we're running up on time so i'll try to speed through it but i mean like i did originally start with a pot with the podcast right um that's what i had so i put out a call in like May of 2020 to workers to send in testimonies describing what they were going through at that time. And I got an overwhelming response. And, and if, if folks wanna to listen to it, you can go back in the catalog and you'll see that I published a two part um, compilation of these testimonies, almost six hours worth of working people telling, uh, describing what they were going through at that moment. And so thankfully, Teddy Ostro, the great Teddy Ostro, uh, editor at Or Books, reached out to me and asked if I would want to do a book about that. And I wasn't quite sure because I'm very particular, I'm very partial to the medium of audio for these kinds of interviews. I think it's the most intimate way for people to have that kind of conversation, to open up in that way. And it's where I feel the most comfortable. But I did see um, as time wore on, I saw the importance of um, recording these interviews and preserving these um, voices and experiences and impressions uh, at the end of the first year of COVID-19 because I was seeing how quickly we as a society were being um, trained to accept the unacceptable, right? You know, we were um, accepting the very things that had horrified us months, uh, if not, you know, weeks before, whether that be the lack of PPE provided to frontline workers, 
workers getting quote unquote hero pay because companies didn't want to call it hazard pay because if they did they would have to pay it as long as the hazard of COVID-19 persisted companies like Amazon just ripping that hero pay away even though the pandemic kept going vaccines weren't out yet it was just truly horrifying to see the ways that working people were taken for granted even while they kept society afloat and I knew that that portended uh, more sort of misinformation, more misremembering um, by the ruling class as things wore on. And so I wanted to make sure that at least in this book, we had on the historical record the voices of 10 working people describing what they had gone through, how they were feeling about it, um, how they were experiencing COVID-19. And, um, you know, I think that that it's very instructive to go back and, and listen to their stories. And I hope that people who read it now and in the future recognize the, the supreme injustice that has been done and also recognize the incalculable loss of all the millions of friends and family members and co-workers and fellow parishioners whom we have lost over the past two and a half years. And I hope that this book and these stories and these brave workers who I'm honored to have in this book, and I cannot thank enough uh, for sharing their stories with me, and I can't thank enough everyone who helped me connect with these workers. I hope that when we read these stories um, and lift them up and honor them, that it leads us to fight harder for one another and to make sure that working people are never taken advantage of or forgotten or exploited the way that they have been up until now. The book is called The Work of Living. Maximilian Alvarez is the author. You can find it online, uh, The Work of Living from OR Books. We're going to continue the conversation with Max Alvarez in overtime. You can find us on Facebook and on YouTube. I've got some more questions that I wanted to ask him about the book, and then we're going to uh, get a little bit more silly in the rest of the conversation. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have some fun. Uh, so, folks, find us online, uh, Facebook, YouTube, all at the Valley Labor Report. We're going to continue talking to Maximilian Alvarez. And uh, until then, all power to the workers. Mm -hmm.